Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. We want to rightly divide the Word of God. We don't want to go to God's Word to try to back up what we already believe, but we want to find out what the Bible says so we can know what to believe. The Word of God is our authority. The Bible says that God's Word has been given by the inspiration of the Spirit, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Our first question comes from a question that we had last time we were together about the vessels of honor and dishonor. The question was, so those who believe are the vessels of honor and those who don't believe are the vessels of dishonor. Now, of course, chapter 9 of the book of Romans is the chapter that reformed theology, those who believed in limited atonement and irresistible grace hang on to. I believe irresistible atonement is not defendable. You can't find in the Bible that Jesus didn't die for everybody. The opposite is true. It says that he died for all, that it is sufficient. This doesn't mean that everybody's going to receive it. I could pay for dinner for everybody in the world, but for various reasons, people in the world won't have that dinner. But it's not because I haven't paid for it and made it available for them. And so Christ has made salvation available for anyone who would believe. Remember, the book of Romans is fighting the same battle the book of Galatians is fighting. That is, those that believe it is through Judaism that you are saved. That if you are of Israel, that if you are a son of Abraham, then, and, and that you have to keep the law. And he goes methodically through the case, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, making the case that we are the descendants of Abraham in the fact that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him righteousness. And if we believe, it is accounted to us as righteousness as well. So I thought I would bring up the passage that in Romans 19 and read it all the way to the end of the chapter. And you're going to see the context of the end of this chapter, and I want to go on into Romans 10, and then we'll see how you can't, when you divorce a passage from its context, you can make it say whatever you want. And to try to say that Romans 9 is saying that God can randomly choose someone to be saved, and and that God can randomly choose someone to burn in ever, ever for hell, is to divorce it from the passage that tells us that you have to believe to be saved. Now, I know they're going to defend and say those who God chooses, he gives them the power to be able to believe, so every person who is saved does believe. But the mode of salvation is in believing. And the Bible says that, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whoever believes in him will be saved. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not die, and even if he does die, he will live. So we have that choice. He doesn't say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone God chooses to be saved will be saved. And any that God chooses to reject will reject. God could have said that, but he didn't say these things. Now let's take a look at this passage. So it says here, this is Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Uh, you will say to me then, what do, why does he still find fault? That is, for those who don't believe, why does he still find fault with them? For he who has resisted his will. Why does God continue to judge them? He created them. They didn't ask to be created. Why would he still judge them? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay and the same lump to make of the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another of dishonor? 
What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us who have called, not on the not of the Jews only, but also on the Gentiles. And he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who are not beloved, and it will come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people and they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnants shall be saved for he will, will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make short work upon the earth and Isaiah before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would become of Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have obtained righteousness, or righteousness of faith by Israel pursuing the law of righteousness? See, so he's coming back to the law. Has not attained the law of righteousness? Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Those God has chosen as vessels of honor seek it by faith. But if, uh, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, that is, they stumbled at Christ, and then whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So there at the very end of the chapter, it says now whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It doesn't say whoever God has chosen randomly will not be saved. Then he goes on to chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. We're back to the law. They're trying to keep the law in order to be saved. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So you can't divorce chapter 9 from chapter 10. He'll go on to say, for Moses writes about the righteousness of the law that man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith, the faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, and bring Christ down from above, or who will descend to the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word of the Lord is near you, even in your mouth and your heart. That is, the word of faith, which we preached that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And that should put it to rest. Whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. This is the context of the passage of vessels of honor and dishonor. And it seems like if you choose not to believe, or if you want to live by the law, then you shouldn't be a vessel of dishonor. So God says, who are you to say to him who formed him? And, and I will say to those who want to try to make it God's random choice by setting his foreknowledge aside. And my question always has been, why do you set God's foreknowledge aside? That God can't, that who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He knew you would receive him and believe him, and then he predestined you. I believe in predestination. 
that God predestines those who are going to believe to be conformed to the image of a son. I believe in the sovereignty of God, that God's going to do what God wants to do. And God chose that if anyone would call on his name, he could be saved. Show me where the Bible says otherwise, that God didn't choose anyone who would call on his name to be saved. If God chose that, then who are you to say that God can't do such a thing? Or that God must, without any foreknowledge, he must put something aside that he doesn't know in order to choose someone. And when it talks about God loving Jacob and hating Esau, he's talking about the nation of Israel and the Edomites. And all you've got to do is go back to the Old Testament passage, which is what you want to do in good Bible study. You want to look at where it came from and see that he's talking about the nations. He's not talking about the individuals. And this is really important for us to understand. God's grace is available to all and anyone who could call on him. The idea that when I'm preaching a message, there might be some in that room who could not call on the name of the Lord because God hasn't died for them. The blood wasn't for them. As I said, is undefendable in scripture. It can't be. And if you disagree with me, I'm, I'm fine to hear your arguments in the comment section in where you think the Bible says that Jesus only died for some and didn't die for all, that his death wasn't sufficient for all. I think that's a mistake, and I think it cannot be defended by Scripture. All right, so thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, that was our question that we had a few weeks ago on whether or not we were... Uh, if we're vessels of honor or dishonor and how we become those vessels of honor and dishonor. Andre got on first again, as he does regularly. Um, and Andre says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, but the Song of Solomon appropriated for children, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, and 8, are pretty juicy. Song of Solomon. Um, yeah, so what's the question, um, appropriate for children? Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, okay. So God's word, first of all, I'm going to argue that the song of Solomon isn't crass. I know there are people that read things in it and make it crass, but the song of Solomon itself isn't crass, but I've got to think of my you know, when my children were four, five, six, and seven. And I wasn't reading them about Ehud, who stabbed the King England and his guts came out. I wasn't reading them about, um, what's the woman's name, who took a tent peg and, and put it through the head of, um, yeah, and nailed him to the floor. I wasn't reading about the Israelite who walked right in front of Moses with a Moabite woman, went into the tent and started having sex with her. And then she ran. Uh, then a, um, one of the, the priests grabbed a spear and stabbed them both into the ground. The, the Bible is not necessarily written for children. There's certain things that we leave out when we talk to them about kids. And the Song of Solomon is interesting because I do think it talks about the love between a man and a woman. And I think that there are lessons or applications in it that talk about the love, the relationship that we are supposed to have to God. I think that as you teach through that book, it is talking about the joy of the sexual union that God has given us. And that 
it's not an ugly thing. And there are a lot of Christians over the years that have made it an ugly thing. And maybe even people today that still make it an ugly thing. Instead of something to be enjoyed, experienced between a husband and a wife, anything outside of a missionary style of lovemaking is considered to be sinful, but the Bible doesn't teach that. And I think that's really important for us to understand. And so people get really restrictive in their, in their marriages. And I think that God wants us to be able to give one another pleasure. That's why he created it and put it within marriage, that there's only one person who can give you that pleasure. And I think that's really important. So yeah, the Song of Solomon, I, I, don't, I don't think you would wanna read it to your kids and then go, well, this is what this means. I, but I don't know that you couldn't, you couldn't read it to your kids because it, it's not, it's not crass. And I think that's really important. God's word isn't crass. Yes, the Song of Solomon was inspired by God and talks about sexual things. But what makes us think that God would, would not make us sexual and then not show us the best for that? What God really wants for us within the sexual union, that sex was God's idea wasn't man's idea, it was God's idea. God came up with it and wants a man and a woman to enjoy it within the confines of marriage. And once it's in the confines of marriage, I think the enemy attacks. And so people get involved sexually before they're married. They have kind of certain things they do. Then after they get married, they think that those things that they did before, sexual acts, are restricted and that they can't be done. And I think that this is the enemy before you're married, tempting you to do something. And then after you're married, trying to get you to, to restrict things. So it's not a satisfying union between a husband and wife. And I'll, I'll just, I know I wasn't asked this question, but I'll just answer it. Whatever is done in the bedroom needs to be comfortable for both parties needs to be something that both parties desire. Um, but also perhaps learning that things that, that Christians have said are completely off limits are not necessarily completely off limits. That there are things that are, are permissible within the bedroom that those in Christianity have said were not because they see sex and the act of of lovemaking and interacting with one another as being something dirty when God's made it something to be enjoyed. It was God's idea and put in the right confines of a man and a woman leaving their father and mother, the two joining together, which is the act of sexual union will become one flesh. And I think the Song of Solomon is important in showing us that there's more that's involved to lovemaking than just the missionary position. And uh, I hope that there aren't little ears listening that are going, mommy, what's he talking about? All right. But thank you very much for your question. Um, I guess next time when I start to talk about that, I should say, if you've got little ones, go ahead and, uh, and have them not listen to this particular part. But I do think it's really important. I think the enemy wants to destroy how many times I've talked to couples that struggled before they were married to keep themselves pure, and then they get married and now one or the other cuts off the sexual union 
or limits it in in certain ways. And I just think it's the enemy getting in instead of having it be something that is really pleasurable and loving. And I think that the intimacy in the sexual area is meant to bring intimacy outside of the sexual union as well. And so that couples get in this big cycle. They aren't involved intimately and then they aren't involved intimately and they aren't involved intimately and they aren't involved intimately. And one might say, well, we're never intimate outside of, of the sexual union. And so how, I don't wanna be intimate in the sexual union. And the other one will say, well, we never have the sexual intimacy, so it makes me not wanna be intimate. So it's just this cycle that, that happens that just needs to be broken and let there be intimacy that comes in both areas within marriage. Let marriage be that blessing that God meant it to be. All right, so we have a question now from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Question, if Revelation 7 churches also depict church history, if Revelation 7 churches also depict church history, um, we'd now be in the lukewarm era. Should this not therefore stand as a pretty major warning to modern churches not to become lukewarm? Uh, yeah, the last two churches, and, and we'll map them out here pretty soon. We're in the book of Revelation now on Wednesday nights. Um, we're going to take a look at the rest of the vision, the things that happen around the vision of Jesus. We looked at the vision of Jesus last Wednesday night. And one of them is the letters to the seven churches. And we will talk about what church depicts what church age and how remarkable that is. And when you come to the end, Philadelphia and Laodicea, are two church ages that go side by side. So that today there is the faithful church and there is the lukewarm church. And are you part of the lukewarm church? Or are you part of the faithful church? If you're a faithful church, it'll keep you from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole world. This is the very last church and we're in the last churches. The lukewarm church, he'll spew you out of his mouth so you will not be a part of him. And so you've got to be on fire for Jesus. I would that you were either cold or hot. And however you take that, some people believe God's saying either be cold for me or be hot for me. And both of those are good positive things, but because you're lukewarm, I'm gonna spew you out. Others say God wants you to be hot for him and not cold for him, be on fire for him and not cold for him or he's gonna spew you out. Um, doesn't matter to me how you take that. The point is still the same. It's funny how we'll get arguing about certain things or people will get arguing about certain things and, and not realize, Either way, it says the same thing. That if you aren't living wholeheartedly for God, if you're just lukewarm towards him, he will spew you out of his mouth. I think that that's happening today, um, psych man. I think there are a lot of people that don't have, aren't living for God. What is it? Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live to him. Romans 12, one and two, that we are to give sacrifices of ourselves to the living God. And this is the perfect, acceptable, and good will of God, that we are to give our lives as sacrifices to him. So many other passages we could talk to that talk about living wholeheartedly to Jesus. He used, what's the right word for um, when he said, hate your father and mother. If you don't hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. So you, hyperbolic, he uses hyperbolic language to get the point across that we're to live with him. We're not to hate our father and mother, but he used hyperbolic language that our love to him is to be so strong that in comparison, our mother and father and children and wife are to be like hatred. 
That's how strong the love of God is supposed to be in our lives. And so, yeah, we're, we're supposed to give him everything to live wholeheartedly for him and to not be lukewarm. And the churches in the last days will have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power. They'll talk about love and God, but no one's being set free from struggles of sin. No one's being healed. There's just the power of God isn't evident among the churches, but they do coexist together. Philadelphia and Laodicea, the faithful church and the lukewarm church. Thank you very much. A psych man, I appreciate that. Um, so we have a question from Barbara. Barbara, good to see you. Barbara says, are the man or is the man of sin and the Antichrist created beings or are they born of a woman? All right, so the man of sin and the Antichrist are the same person and they're born of a woman. Now, who knows, after he is wounded with a deadly wound and then resurrected, that people might not say that it is a miraculous birth. And people might say, oh, come on, that's not gonna happen. Really? Today, there's a lot of people who are saying the government's put out reports that UFOs exist. And I think there's a lot of supernatural stuff that's gonna be discovered. And I think it's a distraction away from a lot of the discoveries that we have in, in archaeology towards um, that, that support the Bible. Do you know that in Babylon, they found some everyday writings that were an, an accounting of who got what? And that they talked about the King Jehoiakim and his children receiving certain things. It is a another archaeological discovery that backs up what the Bible says. Remember that when Nebuchadnezzar took, back, took Israel, he took Jehoiakim, the king of Israel, with him. He put up Zedekiah as king. Then he went back and killed Zedekiah. But Jehoiakim remained in Egypt, and his grandson or great-grandson, Zerubbabel, went back and rebuilt the temple, and the line continued on for the Messiah to go to David. And so I, I think that a lot, I think that a lot of these things that are happening today are 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 spectacular to take us away from the evidence that is being found that is irresputable, um, irresputable, that is indisputable. It's the heavyweight, indisputable archaeological discoveries. Um, I want to take some time to put together hot topics on the incredible archaeology discoveries that have been found that prove the Bible because they've been argued for so long that they haven't, when I think this one was discovered in the early 1900s, and no one talks about it for being a proof that the Bible wasn't written in Babylon, but was actually written before that, and the events that happened weren't made up to try to give Israel a claim to the land, which is what a lot of non-Christian biblical scholars believe, but that it actually happened. There's evidence, there's no doubt that the events the Old Testament talk about are history and actually happened. And I'm not saying there's evidence for the miraculous, I'm just saying the events. Sennacherib attacking Jerusalem, um, a battle with the Moabites, all of these are found in other cultures in archeology span and are not only in Christianity. All of this should give us a heart, a desire to, 
to be excited that God's word is true. Because if it is true geographically and archaeologically, then it is true spiritually. And that's the most important part, that we can put our trust in a God who can do anything and who will, when we call out on his name, he will answer our, do those things. All right, so I know I got off onto a whole little tangent there. Um, let's see, uh, Barbara, right? Yeah, I got off on a little tangent there, sorry that I did that. Um, but yeah, who knows what kind of things are gonna be said about the Antichrist that people are gonna believe because people are believing all kinds of things that are outside of the realm of science today. Science cannot prove these UFOs that go at such speeds, turn and go another direction. And I don't know if they're saying that they're, some are saying that they're aliens for sure. And people are beginning to believe it because what do you do with carrier that has several of these orbs that are flying around them? What are we, they're gonna do? It's not, we're not far from people claiming that they actually make contact with alien races. So yeah, thanks Barbara, I appreciate that. Hopefully I answered your question. Um, yeah, they are born of a woman, all right? So um, Kay Fox has a question. She says, will the millennium reign of Jesus have David as the king? Ezekiel 37, 24 and 25, Jeremiah 39 and Amos 9, 11 and 12. All right, well, let's just go to Ezekiel. Let's take a look at this. And um, we talked about this not that long ago, okay? Um, Jesus does reign on the throne of David for sure, all right? And um, let me just get here to, uh, it's Ezekiel. Yeah, there it is, Ezekiel. Yeah, um, Jesus rules on, on the throne, 37.24. Let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen. And here it says, um, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statues and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I give them to Jacob, my servant, where your father has dwelt. All right, so we're going to take that this is talking about the millennium period and that David could be reigning. It may be using David as a reference to Jesus there, maybe not. Um, during the millennium period, everybody's resurrected. So David is resurrected. So where's David at? And we know that Jesus is sitting on his throne, but we're ruling and reigning with Christ. So what makes us think that David wouldn't rule and reign for, for Christ as well? Let's look at Jeremiah 39. Let's continue on here a little bit. Do a little bit of a Bible study and see if we can't figure this out. So Jeremiah 39. So this is right after the passage that says that the time of God is a time of God's trouble. That's 37. Um, so let's start there. And just to kind of give it a little bit of context. All right. So um, it says, alas, for the day is great. None is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be called out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will rise up for them. Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord. So God talks about rising up Jacob there. 
from the dead. And I think that's pretty clear that we can see that that is God raising Jacob up from the dead. So yeah, um, why would we think that David would not reign along with us as a king if others are reigning as well? So we have Amos 9. Let's go ahead and take a look at that since we looked at the other ones. Amos 9, 11 through 12. Let me go ahead and put this up for you. Okay, thank you for your question. I, I appreciate you putting all the references in here too. So we can go look at them. So it says, on that day, I will rise up a tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damage. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom all the Gentiles that are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. The day is coming, says the Lord, when the plowman and, um, all right. So yeah, I think the other two are a little bit stronger, but they do really help us. They really do help us to understand that, um, yeah, David, I think that David is gonna rule and reign with, the, with, with Jesus, but Jesus is on the throne and we rule and reign with him. So what makes us think that David would rule and reign? It's not that David is on the throne, it's Jesus that's on the throne. And as I read that, I would read it as being David, not David ruling and reigning there in Jerusalem with Jesus, not just David ruling and Jesus not ruling, which is what we might have a tendency to think. Well, David's ruling, what's Jesus doing? Ruling from the rod of iron. But remember, he is a king of kings and he will have kings that are ruling with him and we are a nation of kings and priests. So we are some of those who are gonna be ruling with them because we are royalty as well, okay? Which is just absolutely amazing, right? We are, a, we, are, we are a kingdom of priests and we are a royal priesthood. That's a pretty amazing statements. A royal priesthood, meaning that I have access to God and I can give sacrifices and I have royalty in me, you know, this, uh, my dad used to say that we were Heinz 57, this Irish, Dutch, um, English guy has royalty in him because of Jesus Christ. All right, so um, do we have a follow-up here? We do, Kimberly has a follow-up. So Kimberly says, so God doesn't make vessels of wrath or honor. We determine what vessels we are according to free will, right? No, God does make the vessels of wrath of vessels of, of wrath and honor. So God forms mankind knowing what man's going to do because God's omniscient. And even though he knew what they were going to do, God gave us a choice. And that choice I'll argue is because of love, Kimberly, that if God forced us to love him, if, if God forced the angels to love him, that'd be like creating robots if we have a choice to love him and we choose to love God, it's very powerful. But if I have to love him, forced love is, is no good. And so God gives us a choice. So God made all of mankind knowing that some would be vessels of wrath and some would be vessels of honor. That's why it says, who are you, O man, to say to God? If God has chosen to show his glory through those on wrath, that he knew beforehand when he created them that they would be vessels of dishonor. Doesn't mean God didn't give them a choice. That's the difficulty of the passage, not what they turn it into. The difficulty of the passage is that God through his foreknowledge created mankind knowing some would be vessels of wrath and some would be vessels of honor. 
But the gift of life is so powerful and the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord to be saved that God decided to create mankind, giving man that opportunity to live wholeheartedly for him. So Kimberly, I would say, I'm just gonna bring your question on here again. I would say, I would not agree with your question. Follow up, hi pastor. So God doesn't make vessels of wrath or dishonor or honor. Yes, he does make them. It's just that we get to determine, but he knew that some would be vessels of wrath and some of honor. We determine what vessels we are according to free will. Now that's true. It is according to free will, but remember God knows that. And God created people knowing that there would be those who would not follow him, even more so because God knows all things, knowing that some would not follow him. And this is where the idea of the sovereignty of God and the predestination of man gets difficult. And I'm not saying there's not tension. I'm not saying it's not difficult. I'm just saying the aspect of limited atonement that Jesus only died for some is not defendable. I don't believe it is. All right. So um, we have another question from Annika about the Song of Solomon. Annika, follow up on the Song of Solomon. Answer is kissing something you would consider to be very sexual and to be restricted, restrained until marriage. All right, Annika, thank you for your question. Um, so let me just come back and hit this from the beginning. So kissing is something very intimate and something that I believe is that God wants between people who are committed together. And it is something that is sexual because it is arousing. And so, um, and so your question is kissing something that you would consider to be very sexual and to be restrained until marriage. With, with that as a caveat, no. It means we shouldn't just go make out with anybody. But if you are in a relation with some relationship with someone, you are attracted to and your that relationship is moving to something deeper then kissing is okay but you got to be careful because one thing leads to another right you you can't be unwise but instead be wise and so you just want to be careful and um <clears throat> there was the book i kissed dating goodbye which ended up i think josh harris is his name the other guy who wrote it i i think that's his name and he ended up recanting all of it. He was very young when he wrote it and it caused all kinds of problems as it were. And I think that kissing should be something that is kept towards someone you really like and you're really thinking about progressing into marriage and kissing and heavy making out are two different things. And kissing does lead to making out more vigorously to heavy making out, which can lead to other stuff. And so you've got to be very careful because you might be able to say no when you're not kissing, but once you've started kissing and you're progressing even more, the desires of our flesh kick in. And all of a sudden now we've put ourselves in a position where we are tempted, where we wouldn't be tempted before. Hopefully that's helpful. Annika, I'm saying there's no law, there's no rule. Uh, the Bible does say it's good for a man not to touch a woman. <laughs> so that's pretty, that's pretty restrictive, right? And um, I just don't want to put up these rules that the Bible doesn't put up. Bible says that we're to treat all women like sisters. And 
of course, when you're courting someone, those feelings are growing, um, then I don't know that that's the application of that. All right. But um, so, you know, with those two passages in mind, not to um, that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And I think it's talking in that sexual sense. Um, I still think kissing is okay. Don't want to make a restriction or a law or rule, but you want to be wise because it is something that can lead to something else. All right. I'm kind of talking myself into circles there. I realize. Hope that's helpful, Annika. All right. So I appreciate you guys. If you are joining us here for the very first time, really good to have you here. If you have a question, then you can write the word question in front of it. Then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense and says what you wanted to say and include any references you have so we can take time to look up those references. All right. We have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. So I think Jari had sent me a couple of questions that were good ones that I want to use at the beginning of a... Um, of a, of a Q&A. So Jari says, what is the relationship in the lake of fire going to be like to people who knew each other on earth? Will they still be enemies? What is the silver hair God has? Is it literal or symbolic? All right, so two different questions. Jari, um, I don't know. I, the, I don't think the Bible ever tells us what the relationship will be of people who knew each other when they are in the lake of fire. I don't know. I, I, I don't, they're not going to be palling around. So this is a place of darkness and gnashing of teeth of, of suffering where some are beaten with few stripes and some are beaten with many. So no, I don't think that they'll be hanging out together at all. And then what is the silver hair of God that God has? Is it literal or symbolic? All right, let's take a look at that. Let's go ahead and go to Revelation 1. Because oftentimes, as I say, the text can really help us to understand. Um, what am I doing in Revelation 13? So let's go to Revelation 1. And where does that start? It starts around verse 9. Yeah, the vision of the Son of Man. All right, so let's just go ahead and read this a little bit. And I'll talk about it while we're making our way through. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation, that's not the tribulation period, that's just tribulation on this earth. You have to distinguish between tribulation that comes from men and Satan and just being living on the earth and God's wrath and tribulation that comes from God. So I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is during the reign of Domitian, um, he would have been a prisoner there. He would have been doing prison work. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I think that means that he was seeking God. It was the Lord's day. I think that's a reference to the first day of the week. I think he's praying and seeking God and he's in the spirit, just meaning he's just letting the spirit move in him. And he heard a loud voice like a trumpet saying, I am the alpha, the omega, the first, the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice who spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We know that those are the seven churches because we're told that later. They are described for us. And we see them in heaven in chapters four or five. I saw the seven golden lampstands in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. 
one like a human. Now notice that word like. That would tell us that he doesn't look completely human, doesn't look completely like the Son of Man, but he looks like him. So that's that's wording that would tell us that this is a simile. Clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. So the eyes are like a flame of fire. His hair is, and his head is white as wool, as white as snow. So I'll take it that in the vision of the Son of Man that he saw, he saw his hair being white and gray hair, silver hair, throughout the Bible is a sign of wisdom. He is full of wisdom. He has all the wisdom. Jesus, and, and by the way, the Ancient of Days is described as having hair that is white as wool as, as well. And Jesus is our counselor, Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He has all the wisdom that we possibly could need to be able to go and talk to him. And so I do think that it represents it, but I think in the vision, he saw his head was white as snow, uh, or, or as white as wool. Um, my wife pointed out to me that lambs have wool and that Jesus is the lamb of God. Um, I don't know whether that's something that is connected to that or not, but it's possible. It could be. So in the vision, it looks literal, but it definitely represents something. And does that mean when we see Jesus that he's going to be have hair that's white as wool? He won't have fiery eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth because those represent things. Um, and, and my answer to that would be, Jari, I don't know. All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. We have another question from uh, R. Richard. And R. Richard says, why did Satan's possession of Judas manifest differently than the Bible accounts of demon possession manifestations? All right, so that's an interesting question, um, Richard. Um, Let me think for a moment. So in the Old Testament, I was trying to think, we know that there's no no one delivered from a demon in the Old Testament. And I'm pretty sure we can say that there's no possession in the Old Testament, that we don't know of a place. Um, I'm just trying to, wheels are turning, trying to, to remember if there's a place where we could say that that person was possessed. So maybe there is, and I just can't recall it, but if it is, it's not common for sure. And we don't see it. And then in the New Testament, we see people possessed by demons and we see Jesus casting them out, which we don't see in the Old Testament. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what is the reason for that? Could it be that God knew the fullness, that Satan knew the fullness of time had come and that the Son of Man was being born? He mean, he tried to kill through, through uh, Herod, all the ba- uh, Jesus, by killing the babies of Bethlehem. And so I think that there's more possession in that area because that's the son of man. Now that doesn't mean there's no possession today. I do know that missionaries face possession in other countries that don't seem to be as civilized or have Christianity behind it like the United States does. I think people turn things that aren't possession into possession here today. But Satan had a different plan. 
his plan wasn't to take over Judas and have a foam on the mouth and throw him down on the ground and have him thrash around. His plan was to have Judas betray Jesus. And so Satan, who wanted to sift Peter like we, possessed Judas. And I think it's different because that's something different that God wanted to do. Plus Satan, much different in the, the hierarchy of angels. I believe that Satan would be a principality, a prince, then there's powers, then there's spiritual hosts of wicked and wickedness in heavenly places. And I think that these are ranks of angels and ranks of demons. And so Satan, when he possessed him, had a very particular thing that he was going to do. And he possessed him that night that he went while he was still in the upper room. Satan possessed him and he went out to betray Jesus. Um, and I don't think that the, I think the possession was in the upper room, if I'm remembering correctly. I should remember more clear because I just taught on it. Um, now the Feast of Unleavened, um, let me put this on the screen for you. I won't just read it. Um, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread was near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought that they might kill him for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. So he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the captains that he might betray them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he promised and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So I would just say that the goal of Satan as a principality, very different than the heavenly host that are possessing people and causing them to run around caves, breaking chains, or throw young men into the fire, the different kind of things that we see in the New Testament. Uh, I also believe there are people who are possessed today, and I believe that we've been given authority to cast out demons. I think there's two dangers when it comes to demonic possessions, those that say they never happen and those that say they always happen. And I think we need to find the balance of what the Bible tells us, that we don't go out of our way to look for them, but when we find them, we deal with them. And also knowing there are plenty of people who pretend, all right? And just because they end up looking like they pretended doesn't mean that they were pretending the whole time. I um, We had an account, this is in the early days, and a guy came in, we started praying for him, me and the youth pastor began praying for him in one of the Sunday school rooms um, that had windows to the outside wall, by the way. And he started acting like he was demon possessed. And we started praying against the demonic spirit. And the next thing you know, he had a razor blade by the edge of his, his wrist. And I just felt like it was fake. I felt like the spirit was telling me, this man's faking it. And so I said, we're done here. And he stood up and he put the razor blade away and he goes, okay. And he just kind of changed immediately. And then we went ahead and let him go. And then a little while later on, I found out that there was this guy going around pretending to be demon possessed in order to get money, help, you know, from the church. Instead of just coming in and saying, can you help me? He was going through this whole thing and then taking advantage of the churches. Now I'm glad that the spirit gave me enough discernment to be able to know that that wasn't real. But just because that wasn't real doesn't mean other things are real. All right, R. Richard, I appreciate that. I appreciate your question. And um, I think there's a lot that we don't know when it comes to angels and demons. And all we can do is look at what the scriptures say and try to stand strong on what the Bible says. 
All right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, and um, I appreciate all you guys that are here. I love the community that has been built here. I think this is the 103rd episode, which is crazy. Certainly doesn't seem like it's been that long. Now we do two a week, so we've been doing it for a little over a year. And I do appreciate you guys. If you have a question, then write the word question down, then write out your question. Also, during the week, if you're listening to Bible studies and you have a question during that Bible study, write it down and you can send it to me uh, on any video that you uh, on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, go to a video, one of our videos, type in your question, say it's for a Q&A, and I have a notepad or I've got a note on my phone where I put those questions in and I will use them for the first question here. It also gives me an opportunity to maybe research them a little bit so that if you ask it a little bit later on, I've given a little bit more thought, maybe looked up a couple of things to make sure uh, that I've got the question. But if you have a question during the week, then um, go onto YouTube and write it down. And what YouTube does is funnels questions from all of the videos into one place so that I can see all the unread videos. And if you just say on there for a future Q&A and then you give the question, then I'll go ahead and respond to you. I'll, I'll cut it and paste it into my notes. And I'll have that question there that I can use for a future first question on a Q&A. Or as I said, I can do some research and be a little bit more prepared when the question comes up. All right. Um, okay, I'm going to go ahead and take your question. We normally take one question at a time, but we're coming to the end here. We got another 10 minutes and we're coming to the end of the comment section. So if I missed your question, I'm sorry. I know sometimes I go by people's question. I don't want to do that. Um, so Kay Fox says, before Christ, thousands of years back when civilization had not heard of God or were trying to figure out the purpose of life, uh, they the, the beings they worshiped drew on caves are these demons um yeah i don't know sorry Kay. um i just don't know when you think back to the time that men dwelt in caves and they drew things on caves that they worshiped were they worshiping false gods um i think i can say that in the old testament it talks about demonic powers being behind gods in the New Testament. It talks about the gods being nothing, but also talks about demonic powers being behind them. So in other words, the demonic spirits are at times pretending to be gods and that they are nothing. And I hate to say too much because I don't want to say it wrong. And I'm trying to remember, um, what all the passages say in both the Old and New Testament about God's being behind the false gods. Definitely, are our demons being behind the false gods? Definitely, in the Old Testament, there's a couple of different passages that talk about demons being the, the false gods that they're serving. And I think that we can make that argument from the New Testament as well. All right. So, um, yeah, I think were they drawing pictures of demons or were they drawing pictures of the gods that they were uh, masquerading as? That's the question, Kay. 
All right, thank you very much. So Jari has another question, follow-up. Satan, very intelligent, and are demons more like the animals since people break chains and demons afraid of Satan, or are they united? <clears throat> I gotta say, I think they're united because Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. And so these demonic spirits are doing the very things, sorry, these demonic spirits are doing the things that Satan wants them to do and that they are that they are united. Um, when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he said that a kingdom against itself can't stand. If Satan cast out demons, say Satan, they won't be able to stand. They've got to be in unity. And so I'm going to say that they, they are in unity. Uh, Satan as a prince may possess someone different than the spoke the host it seems like that's the case that is a suggestion that i have of why these possessions look different why judas didn't throw himself into the ground and try to kill himself when he was possessed but when legion went to the pigs they ran off and tried to kill themselves so there's got to be a reason for that one of the reasons may be satan is a is a principality and the legion of demons were a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places and that satan had something very specific and this might also tell us that demon possession isn't always what we think demon possession is that we think it's you know someone growling or rolling their eyes or acting in an insidious way but demon possession may be something that is very much more like judas being possessed and um, much more methodical along those lines. All right, so thank you very much for joining us for our Q&A today. I hope that you have been blessed. Uh, stay close to Jesus. I'm gonna go ahead and sign off now. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may you find yourself really being used by him. May you love God's word, know that God's word is our authority. No matter what someone says, I may answer a question wrong, and if the Bible says something different, that we want to go back and look at what the Bible has to say about God's Word. So again, thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Love you guys. Love the community that's being built here. And I look forward to getting together with you, Lord willing, uh, this Wednesday night when we have another Q&A. Don't forget, if you have questions, to write them down. Use the notes on your phone if you, if you want to. And when you get a chance, go to YouTube. Ask them. This is for a Q&A and uh, we will get them. I want to use them for the beginning, especially if they are of studies that we've had previously. And if, if we have that, then I want to be able to do that. All right. So thank you very much. Thank you, Keith, for being here as the moderator. I appreciate you guys. Again, I love you. Stay close to Jesus. And we've got a service in a, an hour on, um, on uh, well, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Passover. So we're talking about how the Passover is the foundation for communion that Jesus used a memorial meal, the Passover, to be able to give a new memorial meal, communion. And what we can learn about communion from the Passover. And the next week we're going to be looking at Jesus and communion. And we want to make sure that we, we talk about what the truth of communion is. I think that's what the title of the message is going to be next weekend, the truth of communion because there's so many things that are wrong that people say about communion that are not true. Uh, we wanna get back 
uh, to the Bible, get back to what it says, and to know what communion is. So this is a two-part study, the foundations of communion, which is Passover, the Passover lamb, Passover and the Passover lamb, and what we can learn there. Some really neat things that I'm looking forward to sharing tonight. So hope you can join us. All right. God bless you guys. I appreciate it. We will see you later on. I am out.